My guest today is Powell St. John. He began his musical career in Austin in the early 1960s, playing at parties and at clubs around the University of Texas campus. Eventually, he came to work with Kenneth Threadgill of Austin's Threadgill's Bar, an old speakeasy that was formerly a gas station, performing with a young Janis Joplin and Lanny Wiggins and a small trio called the Waller Creek Boys. Later, in answer to a request for material from Tommy Hall of the 13th Floor Elevators, St. John wrote six songs for their first two albums. In the late 60s, Powell moved to San Francisco, California, and with Tracy Nelson formed the band Mother Earth. Powell gave up music in the late 60s to raise a family. But in 2005, after more than 30 years of being outside of the music scene, he was inducted in the Texas Music Hall of Fame as part of the South by Southwest Music Conference. In spring 2006, he was reunited with Rocky Erickson in performance at the South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. Powell St. John now performs in live concerts backed by The Aliens, the same band that once backed Rocky Erickson on his famous recordings and performances. Sit back and enjoy another episode of Music Life Radio. This one, Powell St. John, the Sultan of Psychedelia. I'm your host, Dan Sauter. This is part one. Thanks for coming down to Music Life Radio Studios. We have Powell St. John and his wife, Toby. Thanks for stopping by. Well, thanks for inviting us. All right, so we'll get right into it. So you, from what I understand, you, you, were you born in Houston? I was born in Houston, yes, uh, in 1940, and I lived there until I was three years old. Okay. And I have very, very vague baby memories of those <laughs> first three years. I remember my grandparents lived next door, and that uh, I liked to sing a lot, but... Uh, the most that I remember about Houston was uh, after we moved to Laredo. My dad was a teacher in uh, Pershing Junior High in Houston, and he resigned, and he and his brother went in on a truck farm in just south of Laredo, Texas, and with the stipulation that he and his, his family, meaning me and my mom and my sister, would live there. Okay. And uh, so we moved to the farm from Houston, and I remember Houston better when I went back a year or two later with my mother on the train to Houston to sell the house in Houston. Ah, okay. And I I was there for a few months, and I was old enough then to to remember those kids I'd played with, and and at the same time, everybody was bigger. There were a lot of kids. Weren't any kids on that farm. I was the only one down there. (laughs) <laughs> it's kind of an isolated uh, environment. Oh, it was yes. Well, there were there was an occasional uh, migrant family that might live in some of the buildings on the farm, but uh, if they had kids, I played with them once in a while. But I didn't see many other kids till I went to school when I was about seven, and uh, 
So if I'm not properly socialized, I've got an excuse. You have a good excuse then, huh? <laughs> yeah, my dad was from Houston. He grew up in an area where there was a lot of Hispanic influence. And when I go back there to visit you know, grandma and grandpa, we would get awesome tamales from the neighbors. <laughs> ah, <laughs> and they yes. had a pecan tree in the backyard, and they would always have a good pecan pie you know, for us. We were- well, pecans are the... Uh, God's grace to Texas and the South. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so when did you start developing an appreciation for music? Well, you know, I look back on it. i got to say offhand, I never uh, intended to become a musician. wasn't, uh, you know, I thought in my head concerning that. I didn't know what I was going to do. By the time I got out of high school, I was still had it in my head that I was going to be a career officer in the Army, so... I wasn't really settled on what I was going to do and didn't have anything to do with music. I just always liked music a lot. I remember one of my favorite songs on the radio in the 40s was uh, by Bob Wills. And I still remember that tune vividly, and I remember a lot of other tunes off of the radio from that time, too. Almost all country and western from down there. The the first record that I ever requested as a Christmas gift was uh, Jambalaya by Hank Williams. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> I know that so, one. So these are my early, uh, I couldn't call them influences. They were just in my environment, and I sopped them up. I never played music while I was in Laredo. I, I, well, not you say that qualified. I, uh, I played harmonica for 12 years in my bedroom and walking around the backyard and just uh, just doing it alone because I didn't know anybody else that played harmonica or wanted to, wanted to even play in a band. I just wasn't hooked into that kind of uh, what was going on on the radio. When did you get your first harmonica? Oh, about 1953, I guess. I was... Every Saturday, I would go to town on the bus from out in the suburbs of Laredo, where I live. And I'd go to the movies, and then I'd go and, and tour through Woolworths. And, <laughs> and one day, I did this, and I noticed a little cheapo harmonica. I think it was probably a Marine band, but it was selling for under a dollar. It must have been, because I didn't have much more money than that. Yeah. And uh, so, I, on a whim, I bought it. On the way back home to the Heights, where out on the edge of town, on the bus, I sat in the back, uh, the very back seat of the bus, and I learned to play this old Stephen Foster tune. Oh, there was an old darky, and his name was Uncle Ned, and he died long ago, long ago. And I played this tune, you know, it was a totally diatonic tune. You could play and get all the notes on a, yeah. a little harmonica like that, and I was just intrigued. Boy, you can actually play this thing. So I went home and played it for my parents while they were trying to take a nap. <laughs> they were not nearly so enthusiastic <laughs> as I was. <laughs> but I kept doing it, and uh, and very shortly I, um, I realized that the little harmonicas didn't have all the notes that I needed if I was going to play things. See, I'd been in a, a grade school band that, uh, well, in Laredo, the... Sports teams were not always very strong and competitive in the state, but the band was always a crack unit. And uh, so, like the football coaches did, the the band directors would go out to the the local grade schools with all the instruments and say, "Look, kids, 
what would you like to play? Yeah. Would you like to play the flute, or would you like to play the horn, or all this stuff? Then introduce them to all the instruments and tell them that if they'd show up at the high school at such time after regular school hours, that they would form them into a band, teach them how to play together. And uh, that was a pretty good idea, I thought. I mean, I, I chose the flute and went into that. And uh, played in that band unit for about a year, learned a little bit. Learned kind of almost was about to about to learn to read music, but I managed to leave it before I got spoiled like that. So I did have a little experience with playing. I when I quit the uh, kid band, I was playing impromptu tunes on flute and picking up things, playing what I'd heard on the radio and, and tunes like heartaches and things like that. And so I wanted to do something else, which I guess is why I picked up the harmonica in the, in the dime store. But pretty soon it was too small and didn't have what I needed, so I moved over and started to play chromatics. And so by the time I got to Austin in the 60s, the folk revival was just getting underway, and well, I mean, it was pretty well rolling like a juggernaut by 1963 or so. And by 1962, I'd met some people that uh, were, uh, well, one of my roommates had a younger brother. He says, why don't you get together with my younger brother? He, he plays banjo and guitar, and he'd always like to play with a harmonica player. And so uh, I told him I didn't know any... Uh, folk music or anything <laughs> and and the kid's name was, name was Lanny Wiggins darn good uh, string man you know and he said oh, yes you do you know? <laughs> I said well I don't know what would I know and he said have you ever heard Jesse James well sure everybody's heard that and so we played it and there was another revelation to me darn you know I'd always heard if I heard harmonica at all it was on the radio and it was uh and John Sebastian Sr. and his uh, playing with a symphony orchestra. <laughs> oh, okay. And uh, are the harmonocats who, who somewhere, the guy who played the kind of harmonica I played managed to pick up these other dudes that play these strange harmonicas I'd never even seen. Didn't know how to find anybody like that either. So I just figured, well, this is something I'll just do for fun, and that's all it's worth. But then I saw that there was a... a a wider horizon there if I got into it, and I did. I learned lots in college, and uh, a lot of it had to do with the, the extracurricular activities I did around music. And I got a, a real introduction to folk music in America and uh, and all aspects of it, and uh, not so much about the... Uh, about pop music because at that time pop music wasn't wasn't in favor it was either jazz or folk music and where I was there were two camps the progressive mm-hmm. jazz guys and the people who played banjos and and mandolins and so forth <laughs> Texas, north of Abilene, a lanky kid with a banjo on his knee, with a pocket full of songs to sing and a personal point of view, 
Those Austin folks had never heard her sing John Clay, John Clay His songs and stories will never fade away John Clay, John Clay Folks had better listen to what you have to say Style that's often rough and ragged, not too slick and smooth. This quintessential broadside balladeer is a man you can't depend on to tell the story true to anyone who really wants to hear. John Clay, John Clay, his songs and stories will never fade away. John Clay. John Clay Your folks are better listen to what you have to say We used to get together in uh, in the backyard of a place that uh, some of us lived where you could get a, a little apartment for $45 a semester and uh, so there were four of them there, four apartments an old converted uh, army barrack from World War II and so it was pretty much an open scene people came and went uh, in the warm nights of summer, you might find a couple of transients sleeping in the yard, but we knew them. They came in, said hello, and uh, you know, told us about their adventures. And it was sort of an interface between the college kids and the uh, and the grubby real world, you know. And then uh, some of us had one foot in both places at once. So, uh, what do you mean by that? One foot in both places? Well, some of us were. Legitimate part of the time, and uh, and uh, and rascals the other part of the time. Oh, okay, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Not always good guys, but mostly. Mm-hmm. And and that's where uh, in the summer of 1962, when Janice came to town with the brought in by the brother of a friend of ours who lived at the ghetto, I saw her. First of all, I was very intrigued by Janice. Anyway, I'd been, <laughs> I'd been reading all the books I could find on the beat scene and uh, yeah. things in San Francisco. We were about six months, eight months behind the rest of the world, so <laughs> there were still beatniks in Austin in 1962. When I saw Janice, who had just returned from the West Coast and been on Grant Street and so forth, and I said, well, i got to meet her because she'll know things that I don't know and I can ask her questions about the, what's going on. You know? And so, of course, naturally she came to the ghetto and we were playing music as we always did in the backyard, calling ourselves the Waller Creek Boys. It was sort of tongue-in-cheek because we never did any public playing very much, just maybe at a party because we brought our instruments and force them on people while we play <laughs> you know but then Janice sat down and started to sing and, and if, if that didn't raise the hair on the back of your neck I wouldn't know what would no, I, I mean she was uh, she was dynamite she could sing Gene Ritchie songs she could sing Bessie Smith like Bessie was standing there and, and she knew all this material that I had never heard that uh, that because she had been studying folk music and blues with a whole lot of the uh, the the blues influence being a primary source of her her talents but uh, as i said she could sing mountain tunes whatever you wanted 
she could do it. She could sing Joan Baez stuff, but like a real folk person, not like <laughs> Joni did it. And uh, so she became a Walla, a Walla Creek boy instantaneously. As soon as Janice, would you like to join up with us and we can rehearse and learn some tunes? And she was into that. Did, now, when you formed the Waller Creek Boys, what's the behind the name? Is there any story behind the name? Well, the only story is that the that Waller Creek runs right through, smagged up through the UT campus. Sort of like Strawberry Creek does, runs through Berkeley campus, you know, same sort of deal. Okay. Except uh, in those days, Waller Creek ran by the the chemistry department, and once in a while, the while the creek would turn brilliant yellow or <laughs> green or whatever. <laughs> they didn't. They were very relaxed in their environmental regulations <laughs> around there in those days. So Water Creek being what it was, it was sort of a, a tongue-in-cheek uh, uh, allusion to how there have been lots of, uh, lots of bands with a creek name involved. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Water, you think of them like... Uh, a creek in the woods, and then you think of Waller Creek, and you get the eye. It, it cursed you that this is not a, a country creek. This is a, a city creek. Yeah. <laughs> now you mentioned the uh, the ghetto. Is that correct? Down to that's the apartment complex where you were living. That's right. I lived there from 1962 to, gosh, in late in '63, I guess. That was a place that. Uh, Lots of people came and went through there, as I said, you know. And since the alternative community in Austin was uh, very small, that was one of the maybe two or three residences in town where counterculture people would be living. And it was the biggest one. Uh had more room than any of the others. And, of course, the authorities uh, kept an eye on it all the time. in those days, they were, um, well, for part of the time, Lyndon Johnson was president. So he came through all the time. And they were really nervous about commies and uh, mm-hmm. and all that stupid stuff that used to concern them so deeply. Yeah. And uh, so it got to be the sort of place that I didn't feel comfortable being in. So I moved way out on the northwest side couple of blocks away from the insane asylum. I figured that was a good place for me to be. <laughs> and, then, and so we never directly got the kind of uh, attention that some of our colleagues did. Certainly the 13th floor elevators did once they formed. So how long were you playing with Janice with the Waller Creek Boys? And uh, it sounded like you were just doing kind of parties and odd odd gigs and stuff parties yes that's that's pretty much it and we uh, i remember we played one graduate student picnic i forget what the department was they they just stood and stared at us they didn't yeah. <laughs> they didn't respond in any way that i could see after we played <laughs> and but uh, we always got a good hearing at at thread girls we made a beachhead with the counterculture going to a a redneck bar way out on the north side of town through music and by some people who who were friends with some graduate student uh, teaching assistants who had a little bluegrass band and they went out there. Well, they were pretty clean-cut looking guys. But uh, 
they said that we could come out. It would be perfectly okay. It wouldn't be any problem. And they knew the uh, the owner, Threadgill, who sings himself and was always welcoming, welcoming to musicians. So I don't know who it was that first went out there, but the word came back that uh, this would be a pretty good place to go. You know, the, the gentleman there, Mr. Threadgill, said he would... Uh, he would make it so that that there wouldn't be any problem with his regular customers who might otherwise be inclined to complain. He would <laughs> take care of it. I don't know what he did, but they were very nice to us. Everybody was very genteel. And uh, and once we came there with Janice, which we didn't do immediately, we, we took Janice to Threadgill's when she came in and and we realized what we had because we had a prize and we knew it. Yeah, yeah. And so... Uh, once uh, once Janice started going to Threadgill's, Threadgill fell in love with her right away. Just, whoa. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the the crowd started to uh, increase. And they got a Wednesday night thing going there. That's what they did. And Wednesday night would be free beer for anybody who plays. And so that Wednesday night thing got bigger because of Janice and because the, the suddenly was a a college scene as well as a redneck bar and you know there were people that were going out there for uh, to see the scene and uh, for the adventure of it and to hear this chick who was out there and all this stuff and it got really popular it's a live recording of Black Mountain by Waller Creek Boys control board told Threadgill that he had to call it off, move it somewhere else or do something because it was getting to the point where there'd be crowds thronging into the bar, which which was a converted service station and uh, was not really very big at all, just room for the bar and a big table mostly. 
So they, people would cram in there and they'd order a beer out on the outside the place and the beer would get passed hand over hand to somebody outside who, who could have been you know, nine years old, you know. And, and they, they appealed to Threadgill and who, uh, who was on really good terms with the liquor control board. Yeah. And this gentleman got the first uh, liquor license issued in Travis County after the repeal of Prohibition. Uh-huh. He was all ready to go. <laughs> Paperwork in order. Uh, yep, I think uh, the rumor had it that he was already engaged in the business before it was yeah, legal. Most likely. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so he moved it after that, and, it, and around that time, Janice moved on anyway. She moved back to California, and uh, and so then I played with Lanny for a while, but Lanny got married, and that changed. So I was with uh, Threadgill himself for a while. We played Saturday nights at the Split Rail and uh, and uh, country bars that he knew about where he knew the management and just all over. He always gave me $5. <laughs> and so I was happy to play with him. He played great stuff. It was he he was uh, the singer and Bill Neely was played guitar and uh, sang as well. And Johnny Moyer played bass, and I played harmonica. And so we cut a rug around town. It was a lot of fun. I had a great time doing that. Did you guys have a name, or were you just operating off of Well, eventually we became, uh, we got to be sponsored by Lone Star Beer, and they sent us shirts to wear. (laughs) Oh, nice. Uh, Kenneth Threadgill and the Hootenannies using a name that was uh, two or three years out of date at the least. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, this is about 1964 now, one of the reasons I had left Austin, well, one thing, in 1966, well, there's a whole saga concerning Janice and the, the trip that I just mentioned where she departed the Water Creek Boys and went west. That trip didn't go well. That was her second trip west, and she got in some kind of, of um, trouble that really frightened her. She was fearful for her life. I think, because she came back to Texas and reformed herself a whole lot, got very stiff and Hmm. formal. And for a while she appeared um, with the guitar and uh, singing Bessie Smith songs as a stand-up act like Odetta. And and she was pretty effective at that in her severe business suit. (laughs) But... And her hair all roached back. I mean, it was... If you knew Janice, you knew that something was going on. You know, it wasn't It wasn't Janice. She was doing this somehow for a reason. She was. She also got engaged at uh, this time she came back. And the first time I saw her, she came through Austin. She said she'd see me, but she didn't want to see anybody else. None of her other friends or her influences or whatever. And she, as I said, she she played the eleventh door, I think, in that time. Very stiff, very formal, very 
bottled up, I, I figured. Hmm. Then she went back to Port Arthur. Didn't hear anything more about the, the marrying anyone. And then uh, a few months later, she came back with a friend of hers, and they were in jeans and barefoot and running around, and and she slept on my floor, and she still didn't see anybody, but she was obviously relaxing again. Yeah. So you, was she, she was hiding out from something, you think? or I think she had a, a very serious episode with drugs okay. that uh, almost took her life. Yeah. And I think that that uh, it scared her scared the hell out of her yeah and then about well about six months in in total about it it was all about a year from the first time i saw her to the time she went back the last time i saw her she came through town and she says i'm going back man and (laughs) janice was back Yeah, yeah and i said you know janice i don't know about that this last time was a real real bummer you know <laughs> well can you deal yeah yeah i can deal with it chet helms is going to help me we're going to be all right yeah and so she disappeared west again and the Waller creek boys didn't really have much of a future after that and besides i was getting the bug to play electric music mm-hmm. and uh, i got some people together that wanted to do that too <laughs> The Conqueroo has not been mentioned very often, but uh, that was in a neat little band. They used to open for the elevators and uh, played around Austin for uh, several years. And they started out as St. John and the Conqueroo. Yeah, that's what I read. And when I left town, they just became the Conqueroo and uh, did quite well without me. And uh, I moved west to see what I could accomplish. Because by that time... In the fall of 1966, Janice was, she hadn't, it was before Monterey, well before Monterey, but she was making a a name around San Francisco and becoming a person to go see, and the big brother in the holding company was getting a name and Mm -hmm. recognition. And uh, in fact, the whole record industry, uh, uh, when there was one in those days, (laughs) you know, they were beginning to look toward San Francisco as a, as a place where the new sound was being generated and new acts were coming up that were going to be big. So Janice was doing quite well, and I thought, you know, I used to work with Janice. I play good, pretty good. I can go out there. Maybe I can get a, a, together with the band and uh, do some good, too, or at least have a lot of fun. Yeah. And because, you know, <laughs> sex, drugs, and rock and roll, I mean, I, that's... Well, it was more uh, it was more appealing to me than graduate school. Yeah. yeah. So, did you complete uh, your college degree, your your undergrad degree? Uh, yes, I have a bachelor of science in uh, art history and criticism. Okay. And a year in, in graduate school in anthropology, but uh, I'll never go back. <laughs> you said uh, enough's enough. I'm <laughs> yeah. going to San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I took off for Mexico because I'd never been all the way down in Mexico, and that was one of my fields of interest in uh, in, uh, in anthropology was uh, pre-Columbian cultures of Mexico. And uh, so I went down there and managed to hook up with a friend from Austin who was living there, and we hooked up with a renegade Swede who had a Volkswagen bus, <laughs> and we bounced around all over southern Mexico for about three months. Yeah, that was an experience, too. That was great. Any good stories from that trip? 
Well, there's several stories about how I nearly got busted, <laughs> but didn't. <laughs> Managed to stay out of jail, and a lot of beautiful scenery. We we yeah. went to Acapulco a couple of times, and and stayed down there. We went to Veracruz from Acapulco, okay, right across the country through the mountains and Chiapas. Uh, it was something I'd always wanted to experience. Growing up on the border, you get a, a good hint at a lot of that stuff because there is so much Mexican culture that that's on the American side, and and we're familiar with things in down south like that. But uh, to actually go and see it, I'd never been south of Monterey before, mm-hmm. and so to go on down to to Mexico City and to rumble into Mexico City on the Aztec Eagle in the middle of the night and and get out and all that smoke and wow it was, it was uh, un- unforgettable all the whole thing was just amazing abandonado is a low place it's no place to be all your people can take it from me it's not anywhere abandonado you're lonely and left all alone When another good lover is gone You know it's hard to bear But I believe the sun will shine into my life again one day Ah, the wind will rise and blow my blue Southern sky will shine in a lover's eyes, but until I'll stand alone, I don't know where to go. Until then, I've been abandonado, abandonado. There's a low place, it's no place to be All you people can take it from me It's not anywhere Abandonado Means you're lonely and left Coming out of Mexico, I, I was, all the time I had not really intended to stay in Mexico very long, I mean couple months maybe but it stretched on into December and so I went out to the uh, uh, Mexico City University uh, American school mm-hmm. uh, a bunch of kids down there from the U.S. going to school were, I don't know I guess it's good school I don't know but, these, but some of them were from uh, San Francisco and the Bay Area well, the one I got a ride with was actually from Salinas, but I got a ride all the way from Mexico City to uh, to uh, San Francisco because he didn't stop in Salinas. He took me on into town. Oh. Good, good thing he did. I don't know how he gotten from Salinas anywhere, but <laughs> yeah. but that was an epic trip too because for some reason these guys went straight up through the middle of Mexico, the longest way possible. They didn't go to the west coast. They went to yeah. 
to Ciudad Juarez across from El Paso, and then into the U.S., and then across uh, New Mexico, Arizona, and California. <laughs> and I, I never questioned why they did that, but it took us two or three days to get there. And two, well, I'm not sure, maybe as much as four. During, traveling the whole time, though, we never stopped anywhere. We all took turns driving. But I made it in on the 16th of December and uh, met up with friends that were living over on Lion Street, a whole house full of Texans. <laughs> wow. We said, hey, pal's here. And, yeah. Hi, pal. <laughs> and let me in, and that was where I camped for a few days till I moved in with some people who were moving out to form another the FBI would probably call them cells. <laughs> cells, yeah. <laughs> so I, would, I just wanted to jump back to uh, the Conqueroos just briefly. So that was a band that you pretty much formed? Well, obviously. you know, I was a guy who had played around town and had enough of a name that St. John might make a difference. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, so Ed Gwynn and, and Charlie Pritchard and, gosh, I can't remember who else... Tom Bright played drums. We began trying to see if we could uh, could do uh, contemporary rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Well, do it our way, which was pretty bizarre. We had we had a lot of respect for the Fugs too, so <laughs> it wasn't just it wasn't slick, clean rock and roll like the Birds played, and it was kind of raunchy. I, kind of a garage played, rock. Well, when we played Land of a Thousand Dances, I didn't play harmonica. I played. Uh, and kazoo through the amplifier with a lot of reverb on it mm. and, and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, we played little dives around the campus. And, and uh, it wasn't that difficult to find places to play, really, if you didn't want any money for doing it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and Fred was a good gig for us. As far as making money, I'm not sure I ever remember making money. But... Uh, we got, I got some experience in how to play a bar where people might throw bottles at you that didn't <laughs> like you. <laughs> the old Blues Brothers maybe. <laughs> well, you know, one thing we did find, and I didn't discover it myself. It was my friend who, who had the, uh, the light show. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Steve Porterfield and the, and the Jomo Disaster Light Show. He discovered that if you uh, shined a strobe light on a on a uh, belligerent, drunk redneck. He'd become very disoriented, and he could could be calmed down. I knew there was a use for those strobe lights. He couldn't see how fast he was punching. (laughs) Yes, we had a lot of fun at the Fred. But, you know, things got hot. I mean, um, about this time, LSD hit Austin, and... Pot was already around, and the police were chasing people on all sides. You ever heard the? You remember the line in the Dylan song, uh, um, "Must bust in early May." Orders from the DA. I mean, that was one of the. That was a style of rumor that went around. You know, they, we had a good cop and a bad cop. A good cop would come and warn us that they were going to bust us if we weren't cooler, mm-hmm. and that his partner was a real rabid. Uh, anti-drug guy who might just shoot you if you didn't yeah. behave. <laughs> and they, they wouldn't play these games. And uh, they knew everybody. They were in collusion with the university authorities. Yeah. I was on the dean's list. Yeah. I never did anything. <laughs> I did nothing to get on the dean's list. I didn't make good grades, but 
heck, a lot of people didn't make good grades and you yeah. didn't get on the dean's list. I don't know why I was there except that I, it was guilt by association. <laughs> and, Except Powell playing that music. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the, there is that. Uh, uh, folk music in some quarters back then and maybe even today is considered just a little bit subversive. Maybe yeah. mm-hmm. maybe um, a little too populist, too, too mm-hmm. much uh, uh, close to union organizers and such mm-hmm. things. And, and uh, so there was that aspect to it, too. I'm sure they always came to our folk saying that the at the student union every week and surveilled everyone because there, there are now documents that have surfaced with uh, the notes that were taken by the people doing the surveilling. They yeah. turned them over to the police agency, whichever one they were working for. And uh, so after the, uh, the 13th floor elevators formed, uh, Rocky and uh, Tommy Hall vows to start a rock and roll band to proselytize the use of LSD, mm-hmm. And I saw <laughs> it wasn't rocket science to see the handwriting on the wall. This is going to be a lot of trouble. <laughs> and I was surprised that they they got it all stirred up as well as they did. Well, when the elevators came out, they were a dynamite act. Yeah, and it was just incredible. And people people just said, "Have you heard the thirteenth floor elevators?" Well, they were even they even played. Uh, high school uh, proms and things like that for a while because uh-huh. most people didn't associate them with the message right away, but the cops did. And so they caught a lot of heat and I caught a lot of heat too, I guess, because I wrote songs for them and went to their rehearsals and, and hung around Tommy Hall's be- home and just, I was seen there. That's Pretty much it. Now, this was before you went up to San Francisco? Oh, yeah. This was when I was in 1966 when I was contemplating going. Okay. Getting on that Aztec Eagle and going south, you know, which I finally did. And uh, I... uh, I don't know what actually drove me to do that. I I think my inertia would be so strong now that I would never do it. Yeah. I never managed to immigrate to another country and beg for political asylum <laughs> like I thought I would do if uh, Richard Nixon got a second term. <laughs> but, but anyway, I uh, in August of 66, I decided that I could do it because I um, Ed Gwynn, the bass player, said he'd go to Mexico City too. So we, uh, we took a trip down there on that scene. I wasn't alone when I left on the train and took mm-hmm. a couple of guys with me. Now, this was uh, the bass player from 13 Floor Elevators? I no, from uh, Conqueror. Conqueror. Yeah. yeah. I let the elevator stay in Austin and figured it was just like Threadgill told me. He said, no, you shouldn't be messing around with those elevator boys. You're going to get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get involved with them to begin with? Well, I knew Tommy Hall from from the alternative uh, culture crowd. Uh-huh. He was a psychology student, you know, about the same age as we were, and um, he had a strong interest in music. And very intelligent guy, very opinionated. He was the first Republican friend who whose apartment I would ever visit. <laughs> <laughs> because in, in those days he was uh, he was he kept a lid on it. He just said that he didn't like Bob Dylan's uh, Another Side of Bob Dylan 
because uh, it had too many uh, downer political songs on it. Uh-huh. Like uh, like he didn't like the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll or mm-hmm. any of those. But we were both big Bob Dylan fans otherwise. And uh, I'd go over and he introduced me to LSD. Along about this 1965 was when, well, when the elevators formed just before that, that's when he got the idea of doing it. And uh, I had my first acid trip, I guess, right around that time. And I think I might have had one or two more. That's pretty much my experience with with acid. <laughs> with acid, I and yet I'm I'm called the the Sultan of Psychedelia. <laughs> how did you? How was your trip? <laughs> it was fine. Yeah. I, one of the things I learned was that everything was absolutely like it was supposed to be. Ah. Mm, and uh, on the bigger scale. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, that didn't mean too much for you and me, maybe. Uh, but whatever happens, happens okay. But uh, I don't know. I guess it it did change me in some pretty basic ways because after that, I began writing those tunes that I wrote for the for the elevators, and it's the kind of material that I've never approached again, really. <laughs> so you wrote a, about uh, what a half dozen songs that the, they ended up using. Yeah, and I'd run them by Tommy. And he would either like them or not like them. And Tommy was the guru of the group, of course. Mm-hmm. And the other guys, well, Rocky was Rocky. And mm-hmm. and the other guys were um, kids from Kerrville who were great musicians. Just happened to be really talented. But they weren't uh, necessarily drug culture people. Yeah. And Tommy had to ride herd on the ones who didn't want to take their acid. <laughs> when was the first time that you met Rocky? Well, you know, before the elevators were together, Tommy and Clementine picked me up, I guess, at my apartment. and told me, I'm, We want you to come to the Jade Room because I want you to see the the, uh, the singer that I'm going to put together with the group I'm forming. And at this point, early on, there was a good deal of skepticism that Tommy was doing anything. Mm-hmm. It's just like the same skepticism that exists now or whether or not he's uh, actually putting together a, a great philosophical treatise. Uh-huh. <laughs> we may all be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> because in those days we certainly were. I mean, they took, him, they took me down to the Jade Room, which was a, a bar and a dance place and... Uh, Rocky was there. He was playing with his high school buddies, the Spades. Well, but You're Gonna Miss Me was already uh, written, and, and he was performing that. And we heard this guy, and wow. Some, That's a great song. Yeah, like some, that. this kid's 18, is he? <laughs> you know, and I, I said, Rocky uh, is going to be a big star, man. You you better get him. And he said, oh, yeah, I am. I got these guys from that have been playing... Uh, uh, Beach Boy cover tunes down on the coast, and they want to do something real, and so uh, we're going to get together. And I had never heard the the guys from down on the coast, so I didn't know, and nobody knew. But uh, that was the first time I met Rocky. The next time I saw him was with the debut of the Elevators, mm. and it was just like uh, you know a garage band lifted to uh, super competence. I mean mm-hmm. they were. They were very tight and mm-hmm. very well drilled and 
very loud and very dramatic to <laughs> boys. And, you know, and we're lucky with that. Sam Alexander once referred to as an eldritch scream <laughs> that Rocky used to have. She's trying to get back, but I don't know if you'll ever reach the heights he did when he was 18. There was another guy who could make the hair stand up in the back of your neck. After the uh, 13th floor elevators, your involvement with them, your uh, road trip to Mexico, up to San Francisco, how did you end up uh, getting involved with this band, Mother Earth? Was that the first band that you ended up uh, getting involved with in San Fran? First, last, and only. Yeah. (laughs) Well, in order to tell that story, I need to uh, talk about a fellow who uh, eventually became manager of uh, Mother Earth, a guy from Austin named Travis Rivers. And Travis is kind of the sort of guy who uh, gets stuff done. He uh, starts things and gets people moving. And uh, when he came out to the West Coast, he decided there should be a free newspaper on Haight Street. Mm. Well, he wasn't the person who, who backed the idea financially, but he was one of the guys who made it work. He was, became the editor. And the Haight Street Oracle was a little... Little sheet, like sort of like the the street sheet is now. Mm-hmm. Something that would make a, a homeless kid legitimate as not just a, a panhandler, but he could actually sell you an, a, an article. And it was a good little paper too. It had all the information about what was going on in the community around Hate Street, and it was a, a very neat idea. So Travis, in that capacity as editor of that of that rag had his finger on whatever was going on around town. And uh, he knew that there was a friend of Mike Bloomfield's and uh, and the Chicago guys in town, uh, an organist named uh, Ira Kamen, in the town with a Hammond organ and two Leslies. Yeah. had to have a plane to fly him out here. <laughs> but uh, he was looking to form a band, so... Uh, Travis put me together with him, and he said, I know this girl who's out from Wisconsin who's living in Berkeley. Her name's Tracy Nelson. Let's go see her. Maybe she, she's a good singer. Maybe she'd want to form a band, too. So we found Tracy, and the three of us decided that we wanted to uh, put together uh, a, uh, a unit. We wanted to work together. So Travis then began looking for us for a rhythm section for us. It's still murky in my mind how uh, <laughs> how he did this, but he he went down to Prunedale, 
where the Sir Douglas Quintet was staying at the time and convinced the uh, their keyboard guy, their drummer, <laughs> and their bass player <laughs> to leave and co- go and uh, help him form this new band. <laughs> and uh, what I heard, he uh, <laughs> said, well, <laughs> it, uh, he's, they're not being paid. I mean, Doug isn't paying them anything. They're just hanging out down there, and they're sure they came right on up and got together with us and it was an ideal setup we had we found another uh, found a guitarist a kid named herbie thomas who who was uh, about 19 i think mm. but he had his marshall stack and he was a, a Jimi hendrix devotee and he could play pretty good with the guys we got from the sir douglas quintet we got wayne talbot who is a, a masterful keyboard man i mean uh, this guy played jazz, played anything you wanted, actually. He had a lot of bad habits, but uh, he was an excellent musician. And the drummer was uh, George Raines, who is, George is great. George is solid as a rock, and uh, and the one guy who was, as a drummer, should be the one who kept all of us prima donnas in line and said, <laughs> hey, you know, what, what are we doing here, you know? <laughs> you know, he just kept us kind of online and uh, focused. He was great. And then, of course, Jance Garfat, a good, competent bass player. So they had a, we had a, a what could be carved off of the regular band and made into a jazz trio. Mm-hmm. And uh, whenever we didn't know much material in those days, and, and Tracy and I, so part of every set, we'd step down and let the trio do back home again in Indiana or mm-hmm. whatever they wanted to play. And it was really, it made it, uh, took a lot of pressure off of us because we could go out and know we could put on a show even if we weren't really prepared ourselves that the trio and the, and the musicians we had would carry us through. And that's how we got started. And, you know, we played all the benefits you can imagine, all the mm-hmm. gigs in the park, anywhere anywhere we could play, we played. And that was easy to do in those days. We didn't have any other commitments. It was all we had to do was what we were doing. We didn't have any health insurance, so we didn't have doctor's appointments. It was just, <laughs> you know, everything was open. <laughs> and we, we played a lot of stuff. We even played for the Hells Angels a time or two yeah. and the Black Panthers. Wow. Over in front of the Oakland courthouse, they were. They looked at us like they were kind of wondering why we were there. We were kind of a honky bunch. We did have a black guitarist though. Yeah, well, at least there was that. <laughs> well, they didn't kill us or nothing. <laughs> the Hell's Angels or the uh, Black Panthers? <laughs> <laughs> the Black Panthers didn't. The Hell's Angels used to put on a chicken barbecue every Sunday over huh. over in some park or over over around Steiner Street or somewhere like that. And people would come out, of course, to eat their barbecue chicken. One day, the, uh, the Hells Angel who was cooking it said, you know, we're like your police. You know, we keep you guys in line. <laughs> you know, not those cops downtown, but we're like your police. And, you know, his implication wasn't that he was protecting and serving. He was more like, you know, if you step out of line with us, we'll crack you on the head, too. You're like, oh, great. (laughs) But I never had any trouble with those fellas. They they always ignored me. 
So were you called Mother Earth at that point, or were you operating under a different name? That was the name we chose. I mm-hmm. think Ira himself chose that name. Well, you think it was a very, it had a lot of power with a Hammond organ, two Leslie's, and an mm-hmm. electric piano, and a guitar, bass, and drums. I mean, there was a lot of power in that in that unit. How long did you play in that band? Mm, I guess it was about maybe two years, something like that. I played until, well, I resigned after the end of the first tour. We got a, a recording contract with Mercury in uh, 1968, I guess, 1969. I can't remember dates yeah. in those days. But... Um, we negotiated for a year to get the contract, so it was a pretty good contract. Paid us all pretty well. We fired our bass player and uh, and guitarist. Wayne Talbot was long gone. He'd been fired almost a year earlier than that. We kept the drummer, George Raines, and hired these two guys from Texas, John Andrews and uh, Bob Arthur. John Toadman Andrews on uh, guitar and Bob Arthur played bass. These guys had been part of an Austin band uh, earlier. They called themselves the Chelsea Five. And, uh, okay. And they'd gone to London for a while. Hmm. And so they were pretty good. They were, they were well, they were excellent guitarists. Uh, uh, as a guitarist goes, Toadman was hard to beat. I mean, he could play behind his back. He could play solos with his teeth. He was as good as Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> yeah, wow. That, that kind of thing, and he played all the funky stuff, too, you know. They fit right into the band very well. We worked up some more material and and picked up another uh, keyboard man. Ira Kamen left, too, early on. Mm-hmm. He, left, he left when the contract was signed because for some reason he didn't want to get into it. He didn't want to be bound by a contract. Uh, yeah, I think that was what it was. And so he bowed out. So we were, we were at this point. We were um, guitar, bass, drums, uh, electric piano, and and uh, me, and Tracy. And we added for the tour. We added a horn player, uh, Ron Stallings, bless his soul. Hmm. He's gone now, but he was a great guy and uh, an incredible horn player. At that point, you probably dropped the jazz part of it. Or, well, we didn't have anyone who was doing yeah, that anymore. Exactly. Yeah, well, <laughs> that by that time we had enough material where we could go ahead and put on a show by ourselves mm-hmm. and, and do it okay. Are any of those recordings still available? They just got reissued by uh, Shout Factory. Okay. Oh, I don't know, about five years ago. Well, the early, the first Mother Earth album was a labor of love. And, and you recorded on that one? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And we had a lot of really good musicians. Well, there are always good musicians associated with Mother Earth. Long yeah. after I left, there was still... <laughs> yeah. Tracy and Willie Nelson okay. did yeah. a duet calling themselves the illegitimate children of Ozzie and Harriet. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Any notable uh, gig story? Well, now, let's see. A lot of those gigs I don't remember very well. In fact, some of them I don't even remember playing. Well, it's been 40 years or so. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it has been some time gone by, I guess. I remember being at the Boston Tea Party and starting into the uh, title tune of the album we were pushing. 
and having the audience respond with with cheers and and applause, which never had happened before for me. <laughs> I thought, wow, they like this tune, do they? <laughs> what song is it? Uh, living with the animals. That's your song. Huh. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, it, that was quite a validation. it all and he leaves you with thin air oh, oh, but that's the way it is to understand yeah you know it's mighty hard to be a man living with the animals oh, oh,
That was Mother Earth Living with the Animals, featuring Powell St. John on vocals. We will reconvene with the interview with Powell St. John next week. Thank you for tuning in to Music Life Radio. I'm your host, Dan Sauter.